Hello, everyone. On this uh, January 4th, 2016, we are officially now in the new year. Welcome. This is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com. I am Luke Thomas. I am your senior editor. Um, so look, we have a, uh, a big one to get to here, and I tried to do as much as I could in terms of technique breakdown on the short window for turnaround. I had to not talk about something that happened over the weekend, which was the Ryzen or Risen promotion, for a couple of reasons. A lot of which is that none of it needs to be broken down. It's, it's not high-level MMA, although um, congrats are in order for... Uh, King Muhammad Lawal for his fantastic victory uh, victories over the course of the week. But uh, nevertheless, not a lot to get to, not a lot of video that I was really interested in. And especially after the Sakuraba beating at the hands of Aoki, I just didn't really have any interest in uh, talking a whole lot about it. Which isn't to say there's not some things of merit that took place on there, but not ones I want to pay a lot of attention to. That is especially true in light of what happened over the weekend. UFC 195 taking place in the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. That is much more my liking. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about these fights. We're going to talk about some of the controversy in the main event. We're going to have three segments. It's going to be a lot longer than 30 minutes. Um, but we're going to break down with video Dustin Poirier taking on Joseph Duffy. We'll talk about the rest of the fights. You can say, why didn't you break down Lawler versus Condit? There's much more controversy about it. The short answer is there's just too much to get to um, for our editing purposes. This is the long story short. Three-round fight, a little bit easier to get to. Um, but okay. So let's start there. UFC 195 took place, as you guys know, by the way, three, three things for this Three segments for this podcast. The opening, technique breakdown, and then we'll just look ahead at what's coming up in the calendar. So let's talk about UFC 195, if we can. A very interesting card. A very decent card in the end. Um, it what took place on January 2nd at the MGM Grand Garden Arena. The attendance, 10300 for a gate of just a shade over $2 million. So given the attendance, uh, high ticket prices it looks like, but um, it's Vegas, so the gates tend to be just a little bit higher for... Uh, for a variety of reasons, but um, but okay, so a decent gate, all things considered, although not a great number of attendance. Um, the uh, we'll get to some of these winners in just a second. The fight of the night went to Lawler versus Condit. The performance went to Steve Miocic and Michael McDonald. Um, so let's break down some of these fights. Robbie Lawler defending his title against Carlos Condit via split decision, 47-48, 48-47, and 48-47. Okay, so let's talk about this fight. I had it 48-47 for. Condit. I thought Condit was the rightful winner. I had him winning rounds one, three, and four. I thought five was a fairly toss-up-ish round, but Lawler just landed the heavier strikes, and I thought in round two he made some nice adjustments and landed more um, punches of, of significance, strikes of significance anyway, um, in that round. So two and five for Lawler, one, three, and four for Condit. Okay, what do you say about this fight? Wow, a lot. The first thing I think I would say is let's talk about this argument about the 10-point must system. There is a debate currently that says one of two things. The first thing it says is, no, 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 the 10-point must system, yes, it may come from boxing, but it's not bad. It's not really the problem. The truth is if you get the kind of people you need to, if you get the kind of training you need to, this is an entirely workable system. And I would have to say that that argument is true. Let me go on, though. The second argument is, look, the 10-point must system is fundamentally flawed. Um, it's just, you know, occasionally, yes, you can get a great decision, but it's just not reliable. And so we need a new system that judges things better. Before I, and also that argument is true. Now, let's take a step back. Why is the 10-point must system so dominant? Well, the reason why is because when the UFC was going state to state, and another 
interested parties in mixed martial arts as well, but let's sort of credit UFC in ways that we can. They were trying to make this sport as palatable to regulators as possible. And I don't know this to be true, but I have a very strong theory, and I have some evidence to believe this, that they wanted to borrow as much architecture from known regulated fight sports, most predominantly boxing, in order to achieve the kind of regulatory ends they were looking for. In other words, if they had gone in there and said, we don't have weigh-ins, we have these weird weight classes, and yes, the weight classes are different, but there's at least some kind of order to them. If they had been bizarre, or if they just hadn't borrowed the fact that there are belts and ring girls, and, and you know, there's not a cage, but there's a ring, and um, there's weigh-ins 24 hours, and there's cut men, and it, it borrows a lot of the architecture and feel of boxing and other sports as well. I believe that was done intentionally to make sure it got regulated. So, uh, you could argue, depending on your view of the 10-point must system, that it was a necessary evil, whatever the case may be. It certainly seems, in my judgment, in, in retrospect, it was a necessary condition to get the kind of sweeping regulatory authority that um, UFC was hoping the states would uh, um, grant themselves, essentially. Like, some places, they had state commissions that weren't regulating MMA. They wanted to get that. In other places, they had no state commissions at all. So they were trying to ask the states to take on a, a greater regulatory capacity one way or the other. Um, the 10-point must system certainly helped that. I think you have to acknowledge its play in why we have MMA as popular today by virtue of the fact that it was regulated um, so ubiquitously. As for the argument that what's the issue? Is it that we have the 10-point must system, while not perfect, is certainly good enough with the right kind of training and the right kind of people? Or is the case that, look, just the system doesn't really work for what we need? My answer to the question would be as follows. In the 10-point must system, judging is like, or trying to find a judge, is like trying to find an NFL quarterback. If you are European, you may not appreciate this. Even if you're American, you may not appreciate this, depending on your perspective or if you watch American football. Here's the truth about things. Um, There are 32 teams in the NFL. There are not 32 good quarterbacks. There's 10 good quarterbacks. There's 15 okay quarterbacks. I mean, or I should say there's 15 total who are okay or better. And that's really about it. Once you start getting to the bottom 10, these are people who are not great at all. This is an extraordinarily difficult position to play. Now, I do not mean to suggest that while football comes with enormous financial incentive, recruits the best athletes this country has to offer, uh, that judging is similarly situated that it recruits the best minds, that people are abandoning MIT and uh, Harvard to go do judging and mixed martial arts. That's not the case. But what I am saying to you is that given the state of what we have, a volunteer army, what kind of training apparatus or apparatus we have in place, what kind of financial incentives there are, what kind of personal interest certain people have to even do this kind of job, it basically seems to me that the 10-point must system, while not horrible, we just don't have enough quarterbacks to fill out the league. Is how I would put it. You can find some all-stars, and they're great, but you basically just don't have enough under that system to make it work. It's not that the system is broken. It's that it requires an extraordinary amount of investment and um, manicure and uh, curation, basically, to make it work. And we don't really have those resources or those volunteers to make that kind of thing happen. In light of that, it seems to me that the better argument is that the system of scoring needs adjustment. Because a system of scoring adjustment would ostensibly allow you to get people who aren't necessarily judging all-stars under the 10-point must system, 
but it makes them a little bit more capable of rendering a coherent decision. You don't have to be an Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, to win the game. You can be a Teddy Bridgewater. Well, <laughs> they're with a good team too. Okay, you can be a uh, I don't know. You can be a Kirk Cousins. He's having a good year too, but you know what I mean. You could be a Nick Foles or something. Um, that's the idea. Is that stuff that the ten point must system is broken? Is that it only really works in really, really, really expert hands? If you're just semi expert or okay, it doesn't really work that well. Um, and so I believe that a different system could potentially widen the scope of who could be a serviceable judge. The question is. What kind of system is that? And we don't have time to get to that. But let me just sort of weigh in on that debate there about um, what I think to be the case. The 10-point must system is okay if you're really good at the 10-point must system. And if you're not, it doesn't. There's a second problem here that we need to address, though, that is not the judging system versus this one versus that one. It's judging generally. Think about this picture that we put up on MMA Fighting that you saw. When that fight was over, they put, both put their arms on the the ring mat at the very top of the of the cage. But what did they do after that? Robbie Lawler held Carlos Condit's hand up. Like, like this guy is a beast. Like, we put on a show for you guys. And I don't mean to suggest... Well, here's what I mean. When you saw that, what, what stood to mind? It came to me like I was watching two actors who had just finished a stage play. Now, understand, I'm in no way suggesting that they were acting. Uh, I'm in no way suggesting that these uh, results are in any way fraudulent. This was an above-board, real sporting contest. That's not what I mean. What I mean to say is, if you are judging something, you are ultimately judging something based on performance. And not performance in, like, you ran a mile in five minutes. I mean performance art, not performance science. As long as you are judging performance art and not performance science... Uh, or performance metrics, um, it is insanely difficult to do correctly. It is We don't simply know what the value of one of Robbie Lawler's overhooks are, or, or not overhooks, but overhand punches, because Carlos Condit wears them really well. We simply don't know what the value of some of Condit's knees to the body are, because Lawler well, wears it really well. We don't know how much they hurt. We don't know what kind of damage they did. There are some strikes that were pretty clear. Robbie Lawler getting wobbled late in that fight. Uh, not once, but twice, actually. You know That tells us there's some real measurable impact there. Um, but if you're judging performance art, this is why NBA players and soccer players flop. Because they're trying to show you something that may or may not be real in an effort to draw a penalty. Yes, they have to score. Yes, a ball has to go through a net in either of those cases, actually. Um, but So there is you know, one versus zero or two points on the board or three or something like that. Ultimately, that's what's winning that. But I just mean when the refs are making calls, they're making calls on, based upon what they think is something happening. But if you can sell it, it becomes performance art. As long as you are doing that, getting any kind, drilling down into any kind of uh, understanding of what's actually happening is so insanely difficult. The fact that that fight was five rounds, in fact, only made it more complicated in some ways. There is no clarity derived from the fact there was a fourth and fifth round, to be honest. Um, in many ways, that muddies the water because of that ending sequence in the fifth and because I thought Lawler was in trouble in the fourth. And It's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. So I just want to point out that like, you can say, well, one system of judging is better than another, and I think that's true. 
But ultimately, you need to have an appreciation for the fact that until we have a scientific, deeply medical understanding of what is happening blow by blow, about what is happening psychologically in these guys' heads, about what kind of damage in real human terms some of these strikes are causing, we are simply judging performance art. And we have a very hard time telling what's real and what's not. We have a very hard time telling what's the most real among real things, to what extent it is real. These are all just suppositions we're making along the way. That is why judging a fight is insanely difficult. That is why, as long as we're, that's what we're doing with judging, that's why I believe the 10-point must system uh, is ultimately ineffective relative to other systems when you have uh, an army of non-experts trying to do it for the most part. So that out of the way, one three four Condit, 2-5 Lawler is kind of how I had it. In terms of the strategy there, I thought Lawler did a really good job for a lot of that fight, even though I thought he was losing. Um, I thought his ability to connect inside, whenever he was able to get Condit to connect to one or two punch, uh, or, or you know to finish a combination, I should say, with his hands, he often had Condit out of position, off balance, and was able to drill him a lot. Um, I have to give Condit a lot of credit for what I thought was... You know, the volume I thought was a really brilliant strategy. Not because in the end you can look at a sheet and say, well, Condit outlanded two to one. So what? We don't know what those twos to the ones really matter. It's very, very hard to tell. If you outland someone and it's not abundantly clear that what they did land landed more dramatically, and again, these are all just guesses, then you deserve to win the round. But if there's any kind of – your volumes, your five could be – not even equal to their one. Your, your 20 could not even be equal to their one necessarily. It's very, very hard to tell what these punches are doing. Are they deterring your offense? Are they causing you physical pain? Are they limiting your mobility? Are they limiting your defense because it hurts to put your arm in certain places? What's all happening here? We, we really don't know. We're dealing with very, very incomplete information. It's often why post-fight analysis brings more clarity than in-fight analysis. In-fight analysis is, is insane. It's, very, it's why, again, five rounds of in-fight immediate reaction is so difficult to do. It's super, super difficult to do. Um, so that's kind of what I thought. I really thought Condit, he got himself in trouble when he was really overly committal with the hands, but he really wasn't necessarily all the time doing that. He was either starting combinations with kicks or finishing them with kicks. He was staying busy. He wasn't allow, allowing Lawler to sort of encroach on him all the time and to get his feet set when he does. That's when he brings the thunder. Uh, Condit took away a lot of that. Um, I like the fact that this fight basically never took place on the ground. Some actually, you know, once or twice decent takedown defense from Carlos Condit. So uh, a lot to chew on there. I believe in immediate rematches in order. People were like, oh, we're so sick of rematches. And yes, you should be sick of rematches because they've been done to death. There's been a number of them that have no business being made. But this is one of those situations where this is why rematches are made. It is true that the rematch use has been abused. We have way too many rematches when we don't need them. This is not one of those cases. And just because there are other cases of abuse in terms of rematch doesn't mean this one all of a sudden loses its value in rematch. I can think of no clearer case where there should be one. If this fight was a draw, fine. Uh, Lawler winning, I think, is defensible, but not how I saw it. Condit, I saw winning. But I just sort of want to point out here that um, I've seen some people being like, well, we're sick of rematches. Okay, fine. But that's got nothing to do with this. That you might be thinking Verdum should not be rematching Velasquez, fine. I have no problem with that. I, I mean, they're gonna, it's going to happen, but you don't have to endorse it necessarily. But this is a completely different, different matter. This is, this is totally justified. Um, yes, GSP might be a bit of an X factor, but really, um, when you're asking what the purposes of a rematch, it is to resolve an enduring dispute of significance. I can think of no better case than this. Um, you have 
a very interesting contrast and in striking totals. We know that there's you know a lack of clarity about what that means. You had a split decision. You had a guy in Robbie Lawler. I've never Robbie Lawler is a, is a gentleman and a pro and always has positive things to say. Maybe with the exception of Frank Trigg of his opposition. Certainly in his UFC run, he's done that. But I can think of no one else who. Uh, that that Robbie Lawler has been so effusive with praise. You go back and you watch the second Evan Tanner fight with Phil Baroni before it happens. Like you hear Phil Baroni talking about it, and Phil Baroni goes, "Go back and you watch that first fight with Evan Tanner. What is the first thing that Evan Tanner says? Evan Tanner says, "Wow, that guy hits hard." And Baroni used that as an argument to say, um, you know, that means that that you know, th- there were some unfavorable circumstances that went against me. Uh, um. And, you know, T- Tanner wound up winning both fights. But you, you get the idea. Let me look up exactly how he won the second one. I've forgotten now. God. I think he dommed him from uh, Mount both times, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while. Hold on. Yeah, back-to-back. Oh, and he won a decision the second time. Um, and remember, the first one was stopped by Larry Landless, and Phil Baroni tried to punch him in the face. In any case, from Mount. Uh, it was a bad stoppage, but you get the idea that he had rocked Phil Baroni or um, Evan Tanner so bad. Now imagine that over the course of five rounds with one guy having a clear differential in striking totals. You get the idea. Long story short here, I just feel like an immediate rematch is in order. I can't wait to see what kind of technical adjustments they made. I thought both guys came in with a great game plan. To a large extent, both guys were able to use it. A couple things I think Condit can do to adjust so he doesn't get hit as much. Um, but I also want to say, I don't think Lawler's chin is awesome. I don't think it's bad. I think it's kind of right in the middle. But you've seen in a couple fights, he can get dinged up. And guys have a hard time finishing him off. But they don't necessarily have a hard time giving him trouble. With in terms of if the force of the impact lands, um, then he goes into a defensive shell or backs up or finds a way to hang on. But but it should be noted he can be, have his bell rung um, with against elite competitors, and he's had a number of five round wars. So so worth paying attention to what kind of damage he's done overall to his body. Steve Miocic taking on Andre Arlovsky, defeated him at fifty four seconds into the first round. Not a lot to say about this one. A very short fight. Um, you go back and you watch it. It looked like Arlovsky was trying to take a second step in to push off in the pocket, and when he did, uh, or he may have been in a bad angle, it was hard to tell from the way the fight was shot because it's kind of shot from the knee up. I didn't really get a good sense of it, but basically Miocic fires a one but doesn't fire it, kind of puts his hand on Arlovsky's face and then fires the right, and the right is short and cracks Arlovsky, um, almost like the side of the head, ear kind of uh, area, and basically follows him up from there. Um, Arlovsky had jabbed. And it had kind of landed. Stipe got like a half slip, not a full slip. It kind of like a little bit, but then he put his hand up and then just measured him and crushed him. But it was that second step. Again, I can't be sure about it because of the way it was shot, but it looked like Orlovsky had taken one step and then a second step to push. And in that process, Miocic went one, two, and, and just landed a nice, nice right hand on him. Uh, Albert Tumanov taking on Lorenz Larkin. He won via split decision 29-28, 28-29, and then, of course, 29-28 again. Very, very fu- fun fight. Tumanov, um, you know, I'm not a big believer, and we'll talk about this in the Duffy fight now. If if all of your offense runs through your boxing, you can go far. I don't know how far you can really go. So I know Tumanov won this fight. I think he deserved to win this fight. Um I think I initially scored it for Larkin when I was watching live, but if I'm live blogging, I can never be too certain about my scores, so just understand that. Um, but, you know, you, we knew it was going to happen. It was to what extent could the inside game of 
Tumanov's boxing matter versus um, the mobility, speed, and the kicking game of Larkin, which you saw in full effect. The lead leg of Tumanov being battered. I thought Tumanov had some, you know, again, to the extent you can limit Larkin and put his back against the fence, there's some things you can do with that. Um, especially when you have the kind of, I mean, the, the the rib roasters, the liver shots he was throwing to the outside of Larkin's liver were tremendous uh, when he had his back up against the cage. They're really, really able to tee off from that position. And then as he gets you fading, he likes to throw that head kick. Duffy does that as well, too. So he's got a lot of... Um, you know he'll he'll bang on you on one side, so you take the exit angle on the other, and then he tries to hit you on the exit angle. So you know, he's got a lot of traps, a lot of weapons, um, a lot of good offense on this one. Just just Larkin, um, he's very very talented man, and and you can make a case he won this fight. But uh, beating up a lead leg is important, but you gotta you gotta you gotta fold someone. You gotta get their head to snap back, and if you're not doing enough of that, and a guy's still coming forward, and he's still landing a little bit. I just don't think judges are going to give you the kind of credit that you know maybe they should. Brian Ortega, what a what a fight this was! Taking on Diego Brandao, finished him in the third round at 137 via triangle choke. This was a really interesting one, and I want to verify I saw what I saw. Um, lots of different ways you can go and look at this. I thought you know over I thought that the that the zip and pop that Brandao had in his punches in the first round faded pretty quickly thereafter. Um, I thought he made some good decisions, Brandao, in terms of, you know, if the fight went into Ortega's guard to back out. He did that a number of times. In the end, it looked like not enough, but he was certainly trying. Uh, and that's worth noting. Um, but I think for me, what, 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 what is that guard that finished in the third? Uh, that's the one I'm looking at. And I'm going to watch it right here on my, on my computer. Yeah, this is just this is an insane one. But there's one key detail to the whole thing that really kind of caught my attention. And I've seen it twice now in the UFC. I've never seen it done in the training room. Could just be my environment because we don't have a you know a, 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 you know we don't have fighters in the UFC in our gym so um, maybe it's something I'm missing but let me see here yeah yeah I don't quite understand this okay so here's what happens so he goes for the anaconda choke um, from like a front headlock position Brian Ortega does and then they kind of roll uh, back into his side they don't quite he doesn't quite flip them like a you know like a pro wrestling thing they kind of fall to the side. Um, it's not enough because remember I told you before, you always want to have an ear to the shoulder and then the other hand, right? You don't quite get that with, if you go back and you watch, you don't quite get that. So what happens is Ortega realizes that and then flips over into Mount. He has one leg in front of, um, Brandau's arm and one leg in, uh, behind it, right? So he's got one leg he can grab. So or, uh, Ortega realizes that Mount is not too, it's not, it's not a stable Mount. And what happens is that Brandau tries to go out the back door, but it doesn't feel quite like a back door. It looked more like a modified deep half. And when you're in deep half, you're going to have one hand around their leg, and you're going to have one hand free. Okay. Now, I'm not Wilson Hayes. I am by no means a deep half expert. But I've never seen anyone teach, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, I've never seen anyone teach the deep half where with your free hand, you just leave it free. The free hand is always tucked under their leg because to the extent this gets freed, you can get arm barred, you can get, uh, they, you, 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 they can stop your sweeping. It's a big problem. You've got to protect it. He doesn't protect it. Okay. In fact, what he does is the same thing I saw before. Who was the last guy? Daniel uh, Serafian that did this takes his hand and shoves it in the chin of Ortega. Well, okay, that doesn't work because remember when he sat to mount, he had instead of two feet, two, here's the shoulders 
of uh, Brandau, he had one on top and one underneath. Well, when they roll and you're shoving, you've got one leg out, or excuse me, one arm out and one arm in. Rather than keeping that tucked on the roll so there was no arm in, he shoves and pushes out. I've never seen that, that taught in deep half. I am not saying it's wrong. Diego Brandao is a black belt. This could very well be something I just haven't seen yet that I don't know about. Let me make that clear. But I'm just telling you, you go back and you watch Brian Ortega finish. When he gets his jaw shoved, what does Ortega do? He rolls and grabs behind Brandao's elbow. Thank you for giving that to me. It's basically what he's saying. Rolls and then locks it up. And when he locks it up, you know, he turns a, if you have a triangle, you can, if you're facing someone, you can finish it. If you can cut an angle on them, you can tighten it, right? The right angle. And then if you can hook the leg, they can't stand. And, uh, and that closes the show. So just a brilliant job by Brian Ortega on that finish. Uh, Abel Trujillo taking on Tony Sims, defeating him at 318 of the first round. You know, I had someone arguing with me on Twitter being like, well, he didn't even use guard for the choke. Uh, you know, it wasn't very technical. Uh, first of all, it was very technical, but let's talk about that argument for just a second, that if there's no guard on your choke, it's not technical. There are a, a ton of chokes like that, not least of which is your bulldog choke, which I admit is certainly not um, an expert choke. But the point being is, just because you have a strong squeeze doesn't mean you're not technical. If you can learn how to time the... And I, uh, he didn't get finished with a bulldog choke. It was a guillotine choke. It was a variety of the guillotine choke. But the point being is, while I was impressed with the hand speed of Tony Sims, he was a little bit slow in some of these transitions. He was a little bit more athletic, a little bit more ahead. And if you know the sequencing of some of these transitions, if you know what people are going to do, if you know what reactions they're going to make, and you take a gamble on it, and you get a, you get yourself to a squeeze that you need, and he did it. He kind of got it, pushed his hand through, Never lost it, sat out just a little bit, and then turned on his side. I bet you he's done that a million times before. That is not the first time he's done that. Um, and I bet you his squeeze is like death. And you don't necessarily have to have a guard on you. If someone has some kind of you know choke you've never seen before with no guard, and their squeeze is amazing, and they've got the positioning down because you just don't know what to do, it's going to work. If someone catches you by surprise in a choke, even if there's no guard, but maybe it's an unorthodox position that they're aware of that you're not aware of and their squeeze is outrageous, you're going to go. A bulldog choke is a perfect example of that. I mean, it's not a super sophisticated choke, but if you can time it right and you can get that squeeze in there, and of course there are some techniques to it about how you want to lean and pull, but um, just want to point that out. The fact that there was no guard does not mean it's not a technical choke. That's a very technical choke. It's also a well-timed one. It is also an athletic one. But this idea that, well, he just muscled a bad technique that, like, like there was a, that you know, um, I'm not saying a, a, a greater grappler wouldn't have gotten out, but I'm also just saying that there, that would have tapped a lot of good guys. Because if the timing is good and the squeeze is right and the movement is a little unorthodox, you're going to catch a lot of guys by surprise. It's a very, very effective choke. He should be commended for that. Uh, Michael McDonald defeating Masanori Kanahara via rear naked choke at 209 in the second round. We're now on the prelim portion of the card. Um, you know, in trouble, take, being taken down, dominated positionally. I was like, wow, that ring rust is going to come back to haunt him. And was caught in a bad, bad, super deep um, uh, head and arm triangle. He did have the protection here, right? But that's not hardly enough. You can still get finished from there if they're really, really good. But he somehow manages... And I've seen all kinds of different defenses where you put your hand out and you put your hands like this behind your leg so you can create room. I've seen that. I've seen one where Baz Rudin's got one where he does that and then and then he uses, you know, if your legs are gripped like a C-grip and your, your legs in between them, that you grip, grip, grip real hard, you push your leg down, and then you fly your hand back and then bring it back again. So it creates this open lanes to, to get out. 
Um, somehow he found a way just to get the slightest angle, came out the back door behind the armpit, and this was the key here, was that he immediately launched into a choke. And when he immediately launched into the choke, he didn't quite have it at first. He kind of snaked his way down the, the chin of Kanahara. I just think the, the key inside there is that um, the escape was nice, but for me, just having the presence of mind to immediately apply a choke when reversing position rather than trying to stabilize something or scramble or even get away, to stick to it, uh, uh, a very surprising chess move by Michael McDonald. Really smart thinking. Shows why he's such a good fighter, and I was happy to see him back. Uh, Alex Morneau defeated Kyle Noak via split decision. I had it for Noak. Uh, decent debut for Morneau. Um, excited to see more of him. I thought they had that armbar at the end. was pretty close. Um, but... Um, Whatever the case. Uh, Justine Kish taking on Nina Ansaroff. I Again, I thought Ansaroff won. I saw some of the judges' scorecards. 30-27 Kish was just you know uh, basically indefensible. Um, that's one of those cases where you don't need to be an expert at the 10-point must system to make it work, and it still failed. Uh, Kish having absolutely no defense, it seemed like, I mean, almost, almost on purpose, getting punched in the face repeatedly. Um, Ansaroff doing a good job of uh, you know push kicks, a variety of sidekicks to keep her off. It wasn't enough because Kish just ate punch after punch after punch and kept coming forward. I will say Kish looked like she had really strong collar ties, was able to really bend and, and um, answer off's posture, really get her over and, and, and turn her a little bit. So she did seem strong in the clinch, which makes sense given her Thai background or Muay Thai background. But, um, but when it came to like moving the head or you know evading damage, it, she, she just you know, garroted it up and, and walked forward. Uh, Drew Dober defeating Scott Holtzman via unanimous decision. Um, Dober showing really, really strong wrestling. And there was one sequence, I think, in that second or third round where he tried to bull Holtzman back. Holtzman, uh, there was a couple times where Holtzman was countering him. So Dober would go for this trip. Holtzman would counter. And then Dober, Dober eventually learned to, by that third round, take another step back and then throw him over the other way. But, um, you know, these two guys were doing a lot of wrestling from body locks a lot of scrambling that is exhausting wrestling um and they're, they're, these guys are big lightweights if you're wrestling a lot of body lock wrestling oh god it's 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 you know people talk about how uh, rest how wrestling in the clinch can be tiring wrestling from the clinch but around the waist that body lock stuff you know is just a nightmare um for, on, on your gas tank but drew dober showing tremendous grit finishing a lot of takedowns that you know holson was putting up a really good fight on um so, uh, you know, not just the technical maturation in Dober's game, great game plan on top of that, beating a guy from a good camp, an athletic guy from a good camp, and uh, doing it with, um, you know, an unexpected skill set is, is impressive. Poirier versus Duffy we'll talk about, but of course Poirier wins via unanimous decision 30 30-26, 30-27, 30-27. Uh, <clears throat> Michinoe Tanaka taking on Joe Soto. Another card I scored for Joe Soto, but he lost via split decision, uh, 229-28s and 128-29. Joe Soto showing a tremendous guard, having a near Gogo Plata, um, really putting Tanaka in trouble. But Tanaka having just a little bit more, um, at least early, uh, you know, dynamic striking on the feet, wider array of things. But, you know, Joe Soto, Joe Soto ending that fight super strong. Joe Soto might be one of the best 0-3 fighters in the UFC I've ever seen. Uh, a really tough go of it. Very, very good fighter. Uh, again, I thought he deserved to win this one, but what are you going to do? And then Sheldon Westcott taking on Edgar Garcia finishes him off at 312 of the very first round. Uh, as I mentioned before, the performance bonuses went to Steve Miocic, Michael McDonald for, for performance, and then fight to Lawler versus Condit. My fighter of the card, I am going to give to 
Um, I'll give it to Brian Ortega. You could give it to Carlos Condit, but I don't like to give it to guys who lost. So I'll give it to Brian Ortega. Just for, you know, guys chaining submissions together like that, you just don't see that very often, even though everyone's taught to do that. That is not the first time he's ever done that. And, and he saw that triangle by the time he took him out. I guarantee he was already thinking about it. Not necessarily, you know, sure he's going to go that way, but once Brandau extended the arm, pushed on his chin, and he grabbed the elbow, help, he grabbed the elbow because he was going to the guillotine. Once that, once Diego showed him which direction he was going to go with this, the submission went in, but he already knew exactly what was going to happen. Guys who can change submissions like that, man, they're really just more than a handful. That, that's, that's what a guard is supposed to look like. You know, everyone's like, well, the guard is dead. The guard is like the 10-point must system. Um, <laughs> in the hands of an expert, it is deadly. It is deadly, man. It is a super dangerous, and submission ability generally, you know, because this was sort of side to modified mount to the guard. But we all know his guard generally has been um, remarkable, and his triangle is remarkable. And I just want to point out, that is that is what a guard is supposed to look like. Um, this idea that you know guards are just things that hold you in place and occasionally come up to block an elbow or you know just your legs coming up at a, once in a while to make something happen. No, man, they they, they are a when you can piece. And what I like about Ortega's guard is that you know it's not like he holds you and then tries to work things with his hands and just the hands and feet don't work together. His hands and feet work together in concert all the time, and he's got all the sequences down in his brain about what's about to happen and what he has to do. He's got all the reactions down. He just has a good feel for the position, and the hands and the feet and the elbows and the knees all work together. There's this steady line of offense from his toes to his head that he's got going on, and defense, of course, too. Um, with, with, with everything, they don't work separately. They have, there's a fluidity between them, and that's a little bit hard to get sometimes. Guys with better guards, you can see, have that. Some guys have good leg dexterity, but a little bit limited with their hands. Not not Brian Ortega. He's got it all quite nicely put together. So, so there you go. All right, so let's do this. Segment one's over. Segment two, we're going to talk about Poirier versus Duffy in detail, and then we'll get to segment three. So, without further ado, let's let's take a look at some footage around the, that 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 fight, and let's see what it shows us. All right, so let's take a closer look, if we can, at the, uh, what do you want to call it, the Fight Pass prelims main event. Anyway, Joseph Duffy taking on Dustin Poirier. Um, fantastic fight. Uh, obviously much more for Dustin Poirier than for Joe Duffy, but uh, there's a couple of reasons why Joe Duffy lost this fight that I think are worth exploring, um, and I kind of wanted to get into it because this was the first time... I- these matchups you have against a Poirier or against a Cub Swanson or other guys of that level who have tasted the elite uh, to an extent are elite themselves, uh, but maybe have had a you know a couple of tough breaks here or there. A fight against one of those guys for an up and coming prospect can tell you a lot about what they do well, and what they don't do well. So here's what Joe Duffy did well. You can see him extending on this right. Look at him turning the punch over. His thumb is almost facing down. Um, you can't see it from this particular photo, but trust me, this lands. This is a nice right he landed. You can see the uh, good outside foot placement. You know, put just rocking Dustin Poirier. You can see him grimacing here. This is what I mean. It's not just that he was landing rights or lefts. His jab was nice too. To the extent that Joe Duffy was able to not strike behind the black lines, either circle back in, 
uh, or you know, just the fight taking place there anyway because Poirier wasn't getting him back here. This fight was very even here, and I'd maybe even lean towards Duffy winning just in this space. As long as they're striking inside this octagon, these double inside octagons here, not so much on the outside. You know, it's very even. I mean, maybe Poirier was winning, but you get the point. Like, it's very competitive in that space. Um, not a lot of leg kicks from either guy. I don't that's a big portion of their game. Both guys kind of uh, lean a little bit towards the boxing side of their game. But I just want to point out, so long as the fight was here, it was actually really competitive. Uh, Joe Duffy was not outmatched. The reason why Joe Duffy lost... My initial impression was, well, he had trouble with scrambling and positional control, and I think part of that is true. I don't think that's untrue, but I think what, there's a little bit more to it than that. So let's go through round one here, if we can, to get a good look. So this thing, thing started off nicely for Joe Duffy. They're striking in the middle. Poirier was feeling it, man. Um, just, just great technique, great use of range, great use of uh, just, just there was zip and pop to his punches. So it started off kind of nicely. Here you can see at you know 4:38 of the first round. So we move to the second thing. Now this is to me. A, were a big, big problem Joe Duffy had. Joe Duffy liked to strike on the outside. And maybe, again, it was very competitive, maybe even slightly ahead for Joe Duffy there. But Joe Duffy didn't have enough answers in the other phases of the game. Poirier, for example, if they were trading inside boxing combinations and you saw them both miss on an uppercut in this first round, well, then you could say, okay, it was pretty competitive. But when they started getting to dirty boxing, when they were clinched, what you see over and over and over again is you see Poirier happy to dirty box and strike in that space, maybe even throw some knees in the clinch, and you see forever Duffy trying to get away. Here you see that collar tie, the left hand. They're, they're clinching and they're trying to separate. And as they're separating, Dustin Poirier is just crunching him on the inside with a nice little sort of right shovel hook and keeps that clinch again. And you see... Um, Poirier leaning up, or, you know, not only I shouldn't say leaning, but reaching up with his left hand, trying to keep it. You see, um, initially, Duffy had that inside tie, but then you see Poirier bringing that right in, trying to get in front of that arm, in front of that elbow, or at least if you can't get in front of the elbow, get another hand behind the neck to make that elbow space not the most, or the elbow block not so significant. So reaching for that inside space and throwing all kinds of strikes, coming over the top, going into the body, occasionally throwing a knee. And you see here, you look at Duffy trying to push away, Poirier, you know, hanging on as best he can, and then firing that right. So whenever they clinched, it was Duffy trying to separate, but kind of, I won't say being slow with it, but just not enough to avoid the damage. Meanwhile, Poirier doing a really good job of not just attacking in the clinch, but also attacking on the clinch break, which we'll see a little bit more of as well. So it's not just in the inside space. Duffy was trying to force his way out and was eating shots. It was He was eating shots while he was doing that, and then especially at the very end of the exit angle, he was eating punches, usually from the right side, from Dustin Poirier. You can see it here at 433 of the first round. And then, of course, he eventually separates. So this was the baby, the best shot that Duffy landed the entire fight. Now, usually, as I mentioned before, I said his best striking wasn't here. This might be the one ex uh, exception. Most of the time... When Poirier was backing Duffy behind these black lines, uh, I won't say Duffy was getting eaten up, but he just typically wasn't doing as well as he did when he was able to circle back and get into this space. This was the one time Poirier was kind of coming forward. What you see before this, and I didn't get a chance to show it, look at the foot placing here. Who's on the outside? Duffy is. Duffy throws that right hand, bang, lands. By the way, Poirier is standing southpaw. Duffy is orthodox. So, Winning on the foot placement lands just a crushing right hand. This hurt Poirier and kind of stunned him a little bit, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the shot before this is interesting because before this, 
Duffy has his foot on the inside, and when he throws the right, it goes right past the left side of Poirier's head. So he made the adjustment on the fly as as Poirier is coming forward and cracks the floor to make some pay. Really nice shot there from Joe Duffy. As long as Joe Duffy can use his boxing to surprise you or slowly break you down and chip away at you as you trade in the center, boy, he's very dangerous. And this, again, is illustrative of what he tried to do. Poirier eats that big right hand I just showed you. Bang. Eats this, says, ooh, I don't want any more of that. Clinches. And what does Duffy try to do? He tries to establish control or an inside hook on one side. I think he has an overhook on this side. I can't quite tell. But you see him reaching around here. It's like a collar tie behind the head. And he's going to try and twist out. He's going to try and rotate counterclockwise while he sort of throws Dustin Poirier in the same direction. You see that? He's going to go. He's going to punch. Poirier clinches. And he's going to try and whip him around. By, by gripping that Poirier, trying to get that inside control, but they're a little bit too far away, and I think he digs his foot inside here, or excuse me, his foot, his hand inside here anyway, and creates that separation. But you see this, you'll see this again later on in the fight. You kind of, it's not, it's not like a traditional Muay Thai where the elbow is necessarily on the clavicle or the, or the trap. Um, it's a little bit behind the head, kind of, you know, almost touching the other ear, and you're whipping their head around. As you spin, as you move your feet, and as the other side is driving them across as well. You'll see a variant of this where he kind of stays in place. And he escapes. So here we go again. They're striking in the center. uh, And what happens? Uh, Duffy misses on a punch. Poirier tries to clinch. And he turns the corner. You can see him holding the head down, driving the knee up, and landing. So this is 3-0... 310, four seconds later, bangs, pops him again. In that inside space, it was Dustin Poirier who was dominating there. And as again, as he breaks, you can see Duffy tries to establish range, tries to get his hand up in time and can't. Poirier times a left over the top of his hand. Really nicely done by Dustin Poirier there. Again, this is not like the most magnificent level of I can break down the precision of this technique or that technique. It's just great timing from Dustin Poirier, uh, a, a desire to score in every possible interval. And I think recognizing early in these clinch positions, both when they're right in the heat in the middle of it and as Duffy tries to exit, I think Poirier recognized he had a lot of uh, superior ability there. Here we go again. About a, mm, 40 seconds later, they're going to clinch. What's going to happen? Look at Poirier. He's got one hand on the inside, one hand on the outside, so it's 50-50-ish. You can see Duffy's posture kind of leaning over, kind of wants to push him away, at least protect himself the best he can, hiding his head here a little bit. And you can see Poirier kind of stepping in just a little bit more, just a different view of what's supposed to happen in this space. So what happens next? Boom. Pops him with an uppercut while holding the head. The old Randy Couture special, and I like this too, leaning off to the to the right just a little bit, not staying in shape, kind of you know driving his own weight in underneath it. Can't get away, comes up over the top. Now Duffy, Duffy's trying to figure out what do I do next. Look at Duffy standing square too, right? Not sort of get, getting caught in space, not moving his feet enough, not changing angles enough, not coming in enough, just kind of staying right in that range where Duffy's able, or excuse me, Poirier's able to, to unload on him. Comes over the top again. Look, this is two different seconds. This is 217. He's already landed. 216, another one comes over the top. Now you see Duffy trying to get that inside tie a la Holly Holm to push away. Just can't quite do it fast enough. You know, can't move his feet, can't move his body out of the way in the right amount of time, and he's paying for it, while that left, you can see there, you know, I suppose the other thing here is he doesn't get two hands underneath underneath and then push away, he usually gets one and tries to push, 
as you can see against Poirier, not enough. Poirier, as long as he can keep one hand on you, you can see it here. Boy, the other one's going to come one direction or the other. And then he finishes off with another uppercut here. You can see the elbow, bink, coming in right in as he pulled down on the head and, 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 and popped up. Okay, so they separate, and this is about 10 seconds later, yeah, roughly. Um, Poirier just times a shot, gets it on here. You can see that Duffy tries to get that hand underneath the chin and pull, trying to get this hand underneath the armpit to rip him off of his hips, lift him up, and can't quite do it. Poirier does a really good job of just driving in, getting the shoulder below the forearm, getting the head, and the neck sort of plastered um, to the body. Not too far on the outside where he can't get guillotine either. I mean, I suppose if you want to reach over, he could have tried. Um, but, you know, when you do it like this, where his body's positioned this way, he could have easily picked up and stepped out and around. Wouldn't have been a problem. So um, just a good job of keeping that ear to the inside here. You see Dustin Poirier's left ear touching the ribs, touching almost the, like the center of the sternum of Joe Duffy, preventing himself from getting guillotined. A nice little job with there. And his hands are getting clasped behind him. You can see right there. And then takes him down, of course. Immediately, you can see what he's looking, trying to hook that leg. And there's a various different bunch of things here. You can do the clay guido where you put your hands together behind their small, their back, and yank them out. Poirier does not really use that a lot. He kind of goes underneath their legs while he raises his own base and drives his shoulders into the sternum of Joe Duffy. That way he's keeping his weight down and legs up. It's another. It, it, there's a lot of variance depending on what they do and depending on what you want to do uh, in this position. Just sort of showing you the preferences that Dustin Poirier has and uses to great effect. So we keep going here. And you can see him holding this leg up because what, what, what needs to happen? Duffy needs to corkscrew so that this knee is down and his left hip is kind of facing us on the screen and the hips are facing forward, right? He needs to corkscrew, um, uh, I guess, from a to a clockwise position. He can't do that if he can't really get that leg out and around. Um, so he's getting held here. Also, what, what you see Poirier doing is trying to open him up to the outside so he can create an angle He's uh, to, to step over the other side as well. Uh, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to sort of slide this knee underneath by coming out to this. So if he angles out here, he can, he can both control here, slide underneath there, then move back to a more center position to get control of that one. Now, it's easier said than done. These are fluid positions. So what you're going to see here is he can't quite do it. You can see he's lost that, trying to step over this one. Uh, and the knee is kind of on the inside, the right knee for Joe Duffy. But Joe Duffy still, while he has his back planted to the mat, he's not doing a whole lot with it. So let's see what happens here with this. And you can see the strike totals already, kind of crazy. Yeah, again, doesn't quite know what to do here in terms of exploding to a side at an angle and getting up. Uh, just, just having a lot of trouble making it happen, right? So you, so, so again, Poirier, you can see him putting his weight into the chest, the shoulder area of Joe Duffy, and then pulling behind his legs to make sure the guy can't stand, get it, can't get his hips underneath him, his weight underneath him. And you see him, he pulls off at an angle this time. So before you kind of face him head on, let's see if you rotate out. You can see you can kind of get a guy out like that. You rotate out. So this is a nice little move by Dustin Poirier. We're kind of, not, I wouldn't say neutral, but so the weight's all kind of centered, right? I mean, he's off a little bit to the side and then moves off to the side. What does Joe Duffy do here? Joe Duffy tries to right the ship you see that tries to get back to center because you know this is a path to nowhere this is at least a path to somewhere so so poirier says okay i can't quite triangle this guy's legs like i like to i mean i can sort of battle with him here and hold him here but i'm not doing a whole lot with it this i love from dustin poirier this is what i'm talking about duffy's 
offense runs through his boxing. Poirier's offense runs through a lot of different things. He is an excellent boxer, has a lot of other tools. So what is, watch Poirier here. <coughs> the left hand isn't really gripping the ankles, the, the, the left ankle here like it's supposed to be. Because he's kind of going to let, he knows what he's about to do. He's going to let go a little bit and watch his left foot. He's going to take a step out. See that? He's going to take a step out and he's going to drive his weight up. He's going to drive his weight up because he wants this back flattened and, and upright as much as possible. So here he is. He's like, you know what? I can't quite secure it. Guy's at least able to get his, scoot his hips back to the mat and sit up. He's going to take a step out. Oops, let me go back. He's going to take a step out. And then this comes. Bang. You see that? So we go back here. Steps out. Brings the hand around. Look at Dustin Poirier's eyes. He's getting ready to look up. He's ready to rock. He's not. He's 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 just so focused. He knows exactly what's about to happen here. And when when Duffy gets caught, look at his hands on the mat. Never saw it coming. Not scrambling either. He gets caught. No no scramble at all. There's not much time. Um, you know, Poirier got up and cracked him right away. I'm just pointing out. We go here. Duffy or Poirier tries to get him at an angle. Duffy writes the ship. Poirier having trouble triangling, abandons it, steps out, steps out to flatten him up, push him up top to create a, you know, he wants him back against the mat, head up to create as much open lane as possible to land that elbow. Kaboom. Brilliant, brilliant job from Dustin Poirier, just establishing the conditions necessary to let the more diverse game that he has um, come to life. Really great job from Dustin Poirier here. Very, very impressive. I mean, he obviously wasn't winning the, with the leg entanglement battle he wanted, but you know those are very difficult to do. Duffy doesn't have a lot of scrambling ability, but he's got a lot of good defensive guard work for the most part. Um, or at least, you know, at least is trying to get his knees to his chest as much as possible, You're not trying to get extended and flattened. Um, so if you're going to do that, at least try to score in those positions. That's exactly what he does. So we keep going here. Oh, the round's almost over. We got this underhook here again in the clinch positions. What do you think is going to happen? It's surprising what happens here. So, Duffy smiling because he's psychotic, right? But they're still in that clinch position. So, here's what he does. He goes back here. You can see here, Duffy has one overhook, and he's got hand control, wrist control here. He's going to try and step out and around. He's going to try and step counterclockwise while he pulls in that back of the head. Remember that back of the head thing we saw before? He's going he's gonna to try and use this underhook, he's gonna, or this overhook. He's going to abandon it. He's going to grab behind the head here. He's going to try and whip Poirier like he is going counterclockwise, he's going to step out and around. Look how far out he's... Look, hips on one side of Poirier, hips on the other, all the way out. And he's going to try and shove this back because what he does is, I think, makes a critical mistake here. Holds onto the wrist, backs out. See, look, he's got Poirier dead to rights. Poirier has nothing here and is being controlled here. I would have separated here. He doesn't. What does he do? He tries to land an inside elbow. This is a space where he can't compete with Dustin Poirier. At least, you know, that we learned that now. I mean, maybe at the time he thought he could have. This is all being retrospect. But you see that. He's smiling like a psycho. Goes back, grabs behind the head, tries to whip him out and around, pushing with this wrist at the same time as everything's moving at once. You're pulling around in a circle. You're stepping around in a circle. You're moving your hips out in a circle. You're shoving this hand back into his own wrist. Excuse me, excuse me. You're shoving the wrist into his own hip. You see that? Like, the two are connected. Everything is going to move together as you do that. You're not just moving the, hit, the the wrist behind the body. You're pushing it into the body and then out and around. 
And then he tries to do it on his elbow. But this was a big mistake to me because here's what happens. They go back. Doesn't really land that well. Look at that right hand cocked from Dustin Poirier. He already knows what... He sees open lanes here way earlier and way more often than Duffy does. Duffy's got a hand around the neck here. He's not controlling his wrist at all. So what's gonna what's Poirier gonna do? Uppercut? Because he sees open lanes and open opportunities way way more often in this space than Joe Duffy. Joe Duffy tries. They st- uh, you see uh, Poirier. So Poirier cracks him. They step out, and and this is what I mean when I say. Yes, Duffy had that one nice right hand we talked about earlier as Poirier was coming in past these two black lines. But this is my point here. The round's almost over, about 30 seconds left. Duffy wants an exit angle here. He wants an exit angle, it turns out, um, on his non-power hand side. And so what he's going to try and do is, and this is just a nice little maneuver by Dustin Poirier, he's going to throw a right. Right, but this is my point. Like when he's able to move in space, the finite details of when he can time his punches, about when he can set up his angles, about when he can set up his his position, about everything, when he's reacting, all, all that kind of stuff. When he has the free space to do that, he's very dangerous. When he doesn't, he just pushes into a punch. Now I'm not saying he pushed the punch. The technique is nice. I'm just saying he just kind of launched into it with his feet. He just steps out a little bit. The back foot's still there. This is just a punch in space. He just drives forward off the back foot. It's not. It's not like he. This was the optimal choice for him. He's just trying to find an exit angle here, um, and I think he's having a little bit of difficulty with it. So what he does is he he fires the right hand. Poirier slips it his head to the outside. Now this would be the chance you saw. This is what. Uh, we saw Holly Holm find exit angles a lot, but she would do it with multiple punch combinations. He just tries the one here, which Poirier slips. Now, he has got, he's got the outside foot dominance, but he just doesn't quite have the right distance. He, there was no setup for it. It was easy to dodge for Poirier. Poirier slips it, lands one right hand over the top, and then another. This is the second of the two. I didn't have the, 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 It was hard to get a good angle on the first one, but understand, when he throws his punch, Poirier slips it, lands a punch, and then a second one, two right hooks in a row as Duffy was exiting. So this is what I'm talking about here. When you can control Duffy's movement, when you can put the real estate on a limited circumstance and on your terms, that boxing, it's not bad by any stretch, It just you can't bring it to life. When he's got room for that thing to work, when he's got space for that to work, when he can get the timing down and the reactions and the flow of things... He's a nightmare. He's a total nightmare. He's hard to deal with. But when you can when you can really make him clinch with you and then exit clinches with you, Poirier showed he's got a lot to work with here. That's the first round. So there you go. All right, so let's take a look at what happened in the second round so we can better understand the fight as a whole. Okay, round two. Um, not as much action in this round that I want to break down because a lot of it was spent in a different phase of the game, but there's some more important points here. So we saw some of the limitations of Joe Duffy in that first round, again, from inside the clinch, exiting the clinch, um, and then what happens to his striking when it's limited by being, you know, the choices that he makes when his back is against the cage, or at least, you know, very, very close to it. He just doesn't have quite the same looseness with um, everything that he needs to make his boxing so lethal that it, when it can be. So here we have, again, which should be a very familiar sight. This is round two. You can see the marker at the bottom. Again, Poirier covering the hips, right, controlling them. Duffy trying to post on the right, trying to get his hips back to the mat, or excuse me, back to the fence so he can create an angle and turn. And then Poirier doing a really good job of preventing that. When he's on his right hand, 
Duffy's going to want to get his hips out. He's going to want to show basically his rear end to this kid or something like that. And so you see this prevents him from doing that. So that's neither here nor there. Here's what it is. And I'm going to show you the sequence, and I'm not going to explain it up front because you're going to see it a second time. But let's go through it real quickly. So Duffy, okay, he's on his knee here. He's on his hand here. He's even got not quite in place here. It was for a while. Um, he had a whizzer back here. So, you know, Duffy uh, could prevent the back take. Poirier sees this open angle here and takes the foot or takes the, um, the, the initial hook. But that's it. This is not, this is bad. This hook, this can stop you if things go wrong. But it's not in and of itself enough to stop someone from getting to their feet. Um, it can create problems once you get there. Um, in some cases, it can deter people from getting there. It can affect balance. I just want to point out that the smaller guys, especially, don't necessarily view this as a limiting factor. But th- neither, again, neither here nor there. This is what I thought very odd. Let's watch this. So he removes the wizard, and I was like, what is he doing? And then he gets it in here, and I was like, I just didn't understand exactly what was happening here because... When you have the wizard, the head of Poirier can't get around to the back. Well, he's, I mean, look at him. He's right there right now. But you see Duffy has wrist control here, and he's got his other arm. Now, watch what he does here. He kind of flares that elbow out. So here's what I thought what I was going to happen when I was watching this. I thought he was going to flare the elbow out to get the two-on-one to the other side and then corkscrew clockwise into Poirier. But that's not. What winds up happening is this. That's it. What winds up happening is he uses this to break the grip of Poirier and then slips onto his back. When I watched this the first time, I was like, what is happening here? I didn't quite get it. You'll see what happens when we go on later on. Let's keep going. So good job by uh, Duffy right away getting the underhook that he needs. Um, you don't have to have a butterfly hook here, but uh, he, you know it's obviously beneficial. But you see him trying to create pressure to one side for Poirier. So he can scoot out and stand up. But again, he's got to get a little bit further. And he's trying to do it. This is, to me, the, the, the interesting part here. He's trying to do it against the fence while Poirier also has a hand down. The hand down in and of itself wouldn't be enough. But that he's trying to get to this side. He's trying to get Poirier to one side so he can get his body out to the other and stand or reverse. That's going to be really hard when you're trying to do it into the fence. So just not a great opportunity for him to make this happen. I don't know if he, you know, maybe he realized that and just wanted to make something happen. That could be, or he, maybe he didn't realize it. But, you know, if this was an open space, it would have been better, especially with that butterfly hook um, that's missing here. But trying to do that, you know, while pushing Poirier into the fence and you're trying to move your way out of it, it's just going to be really, really hard, man. Especially with that nice overhook that he's got here. So he does manage to use it not to um, stand or sweep Poirier, but he does use it to capture full guard. So that's kind of nice. And this is where things go from bad to worse. So what you wind up seeing with Duffy on the ground is that he is a capable guard player. In fact, a very good guard player. I would even rate him. But Poirier is just too slick. He's just He's got, again, too many answers from this position. So what does Duffy do here? He recognizes that, well, this is not where I really want to be. So he pushes off the fence to get his head and body away. Okay, fair enough. But the problem is if you're going to do something like that, even with Poirier having like two hands on the mat here, um, if you're going to do something like that, you got to be quick about it. you you got to push and get back to defensive responsibility. The minute your, your guard begins to open, either your legs come undone or your hands get far apart from the inside control space, bad things can happen to you. You have to have elbows 
and hands right in the inside lane at all times to do stuff. Otherwise, you might you might be forced to pay with it. There are some exceptions, of course, that abound. Don't get me wrong. It's not a hard and fast rule 100% of the time, but it's a pretty good one. Pushing off against the fence is not wrong. In fact, you see people do it all the time. But if you're going to do it, you got to be quick about it. Because if you're not quick about it, Dustin Poirier does this to you. Kaboom. You can see the hand is still extended. And look at this. Look at the time on the clock. 2020. Now look at the time on the clock. 2017. You had your hand out extended in various parts for three seconds. You just can't do that. You just can't do that against a guy like Dustin Poirier. He will, he will just hurt you so badly. Um, you know, Joe Duffy is a very talented guy. I just don't think he had the same... I don't think he had the appreciation for what your offense looks like. like what, what, would, what, would, what would the guard look like of Poirier... Excuse me, of Duffy in the center of the cage. Maybe he might be getting punched and hurt a little bit. What's it like against the cage? Just so many extra problems you have to account for. So here's a nice little one. What happens is you see Poirier essentially, uh, and maybe we'll see it again at a different angle. Uh, I'm not sure if I include the photograph or not, but what you can see is um, if this photo doesn't show it, Poirier begins to raise his base up. Almost like he's trying to defend a guillotine. There is no guillotine, but I just mean head down, rear end in the air. Poirier, or Duffy says, ooh, okay, armbar time. And he spins underneath. This is the common way you see people spin in MMA, especially when there's no gi. They put one hand into the leg and they come around. Now, good job by Duffy in that he's got the hand trapped to his body here. Okay, that's nice. But this armbar is DOA before it even starts, man. Look how look at where Dustin Poirier's elbow is. Not only is it past the hip, just think about this. When you want to armbar someone from the guard... This arm has to be on the other side of their body. Think about your body having a straight line down the middle. Okay, You want, with an armbar, if you're going to armbar one side, that side needs to have crossed the plane into the other side of your body. Again, exceptions abound, but that's generally the way it has to work. Otherwise, it's just very, very difficult to do. Even if he was able to get that full rotation out and around, it would be too loose at this point. The part about having your arm across is not just that it creates the angle, but that if the arm is across and you bring them to you, you can just corkscrew on your shoulders, and you don't have to have these big whipping motions that, that A, are hard to do, and B, create space in the process. An arm bar from the guard should be nice, tight, squeezed together, man. It should be super squeezed together. You'll see a lot of guys sometimes... I have seen it. Hell, I've been armbarred this way a thousand times. When our black belt, the guy who runs our school, he's the master at this. What he'll do is he'll get your arm across your body, and he won't use the left hand to hold it here. What he'll do is he'll put it behind your armpit on the other side. So what's holding you there? Maybe your right hand is holding your body to you. The guard is obviously going to be holding it to you. But the point being is he'll have it so far apart. Oh, you know what? He'll have the other hand holding the back of the tricep. He'll pull the tricep across and then left over the top, almost like he's crisscrossing his own arms. So he's grabbing the back of your like lat, your armpit, and he uses that to corkscrew at the tightest, narrowest angle ever. This arm is just there's just no there's no armbar here at all, you know. And I, he's he's doing his best. Don't get me wrong. Look. I think Dustin Poirier is a black belt, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe a brown belt. Either way, the dude isn't very good on the ground. It's not easy to armbar something like that. So what happens? Duffy retracts the arm. Says, okay, well, that armbar, you know, to his credit, recognizes this is going nowhere. Retracts the arm, but Poirier says, ah, 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 not so quick. Stops the wrist from coming back. See that left hand here? Excuse me, the right hand here of Duffy? He wants to retract that, right? He's got to protect himself. He can't just stay like this forever. So he retracts it. Poirier catches it in motion, and guess what comes after? I'm sure you know. 
kaboom, the left elbow. This is what I'm talking about. He knows what happens when if you don't get the armbar and you retract, he's got offensive systems built in place to make you pay for that. Now, it just so happens that the left elbow is a much more potent weapon for Poirier. Remember, he is left-handed, so he's going to have a lot of natural... Um, a lot of a lot more tools built into that side anyway. It just it just needs to be noted. You're, we mentioned before when they're clinched. You saw Poirier just had a lot of answers for how to strike in that space. He's going to have that too here. Whatever kind of wrist control or guard attempts you you know work with him here, there's a good chance he's seen it. That armbar from the guard. When I call it basic, I don't mean like anyone can do it. It's actually very, very difficult to do, um, which is why it was hard to get on Poirier. I just mean it's not some sophisticated Eddie Bravo setup that he's never seen before. He has seen a thousand guys dig under his arm, like or you know, dig their arms underneath his leg like that to go for the elbow, to go for the armbar. So he knows what to expect when that when that wrist comes back. He's going to catch it. He's going to use it to drive it down and bring his own elbow over the top into the center. Bang. Look who occupies that center space right in that middle there. Just crushes him with it. So let's keep going here. 148. Look at this. You see that? What is that? That's a right uppercut. Remember that right uppercut in the first round from the clinch? Remember what happened? What set it up when they had it? It was that right hand around the neck of Poirier. So standing, Poirier fires the uppercut when you grab around his head. On the ground, you grab around his head with your left, he fires the right across. This is what I'm talking about. He just knows when and how to execute offense in these circumstances in ways I just don't think Duffy was prepared for. And again, look at Duffy's head just getting smashed against the cage. This is a terrible place to be. On your, if you're in your guard and you're getting pushed like this, your guard is, you know, you're, you're controlling the neck and the shoulders. You're, I'm not saying you're, you can do some stuff with your legs and your hips, but you're just not a lot. Let's put it that way. So here's what Duffy says. Duffy says, "F this. This is not going. This is not going well." Plants weight on his left. Plants weight on his elbow, and you see Poirier recognizes it and says, I, I, gotta, I gotta stop that, because that's the first step to getting to your knees, that's the first step to getting corkscrewed and around, remember, if if Duffy can stand, it's because this foot whips all the way back and goes here, so let's see what happens here, so interesting note here, foot on the outside, elbow down, maybe he's going to corkscrew, or maybe he's not. Maybe he just used that because he realized, I, I can't get to my feet, but maybe I can get that butterfly hook. Ah, so this is interesting to me. So now what do you see? Now you see Duffy, in my view, looks like he's setting up some kind of butterfly sweep. And he actually could have gotten here maybe. He would have had to have sit up a little bit more, block the arm. Like With a, with a true butterfly sweep, you, kind of, to get, you can get someone like this if you can really sort of horse it over. The position's not great. You kind of want their... Um, you kind of want them two different directions. Either you want them go, sitting back and you can turn them, even if they're on their base a little bit. Um, well, that's not a good explanation. Look, here, here's the point. He is off of his base a little bit here, right? His rear end is not sitting on his ankles. You kind of want that when you flip someone, so he's got part of that. But he doesn't have his own base under him. Uh, Duffy doesn't. And he's not blocking this arm. So he doesn't have the conditions necessary to really make it happen. He's got that hook. And he's got the blocking mechanism. Remember what a sweep is. You have a block, some mechanism that's blocking, some mechanism that's turning, um, 
and some mechanism that's pulling weight onto something else or taking the base away from something else. Those are your basic three conditions that have to happen. You've got two of them here. You've got a block and a lift. You don't have anything while his while his weight is above his ankles or off of his ankles, I should say, because uh, it's not directly above here. It's sort of off of it. Um, Duffy doesn't have his own base to really kind of make this work. So you can see him trying a little bit here, but he, you know, this is if this isn't being blocked and you're this far being pressed into it, there is no sweep. And you begin to see he begins to lose it because Poirier begins to physically adjust underneath. Okay, this is another favorite of mine. So what, what, what leads up to this sequence here, you can see Faraz Ahabi, you know, trying to yell instructions. Um, he'd been getting battered with elbows right up until this point. And then Dustin Poirier sits back and does the old bit where, oh, I'm going to pretend that I'm opening your guard. Nope. And then hammers him with a punch. Interesting to note here, look at look at what um, Duffy is sort of stuck with here. Duffy doesn't break guard to then sit up. Duffy doesn't break guard to scramble. He kind of is just a little too willing to play guard with the position because, I don't know, he just not, I'm sure he realized it wasn't going on his terms, but he just didn't. I don't know, didn't feel a sense of urgency, maybe thought, I don't want to waste more energy trying to get up. Uh, it could be any number of factors that went into that, but he stays playing guard at a moment where Poirier gives him the space where if he just lets go and begins to move, maybe something can happen. But he doesn't. He stays there and kind of tries to play that game, and he gets eats just a hammer of a right hand from Dustin Poirier. And then, of course, they separate, and you can see on the face of the psycho that is Joe Duffy, he is smiling. And here's one more. I mean, the guy could not be happier that he's getting his face bludgeoned, which tells you what he and what an animal that he is, despite he's losing. All right, one last bit, round three. Let's take a look, and then we'll call it a day on this breakdown. Okay, and last but certainly not least, let's just wrap this up. Round three. Fight was kind of sealed at this point. You can see uh, they were kind of trading a little bit in the third round, but th let's pay attention to this because this is exactly the scenario we found ourselves in previously in that second round, and I told you, remember this, when Duffy sort of uh, gave up the whizzer, from this very position because he wanted to get his elbow in between this left arm of Duffy, excuse me, the left arm of Poirier to pry it open for reasons that I wasn't quite understanding. So here we see this position almost identical again. Now, Poirier's left leg isn't quite acting as a hook in the same way exactly, but and of course he doesn't have that whizzer. Arm's kind of pinned here. But it's very, very similar. And this is what Duffy does this time. Watch this. This is Maybe this is what he was trying the first time, but remember it was against the fence like this one is. But it was you'll see the angle was a little bit different. So here's what Duffy does here. He tries to Granby roll over his shoulders. A Granby roll is not when you roll flat on your back like the Three Stooges or Homer Simpson or something. A Granby roll is when you roll across your shoulders. Like your rear end should be in the air. Think of the Meow Brothers or something, how they play those inverted guards. Imagine a Granby roll got held in place. That's what a Granby roll is. It's rolling across your shoulders, not your back, not the small of your back, not your rear end, your shoulders. So he tries to do that here. Now watch this key detail here. Okay, There's that hook I was th that looks a little bit more familiar, doesn't it? Now we don't have that right arm pushing through trying to break that body lock that Dustin Poirier has. We have virtually everything else. Now, this is what you have to notice. This right leg of Duffy shooting through. Pay attention to that. And also how you can see how his hips have changed. Hips kind of, I mean, they're facing this way, but he doesn't quite have what he wants. Look what, look what uh, Duffy does here. He's going to hook with his left leg, the right leg of Duffy, while he shoots his left leg in between the ankles. 
You'll see why that's relevant in a second. So watch what he does here. And then he comes under. Duffy Poirier just kind of follows him here because I don't think he knows what to expect. But you can see this Granby roll gets kind of jacked because he's kind of already on his side a little bit. Keeps going. Poirier kind of holds on. Now, you can see to to get the Granby roll you want, you have to, well, to get the, here's what he wants. Look, you can see him. He gets kind of flat in here. Poirier tries to get to his base. He can't quite get it at right knees up, but that's what he wants. Duffy wants that right leg. So go back here. Why is that relevant? Because this is Duff, This is Poirier's right leg. This right leg of Duffy is what is causing him when he Granby rolls. He loses it a little bit here, you can see. Uh, actually, that's why he does it. He loses it here because he wants to come through. He wants to use this leg, his own right leg, to feed him that one. This one he has no control over. This one is between his two, but he kind of lost what he needed for a little bit. Tries to recenter the position, pushes off to give him that proper angle that he needs, and to come out on top. Now, you can say, well, why didn't he finish the knee bar here? Because you'll notice Poirier doesn't triangle his legs. So it's kind of, I won't say wide open, but it's there for him. Because when you have a knee bar, you want to be on the mat. When you're on top like this, and maybe the knee is too far past, dude, there could be any number of reasons. You can see Poirier with his own right hand trying to push off. But typically when you see a knee bar done, you want to be on the mat. It gives you better balance. When you're like this, your hips might be going one way, and your shoulders might be running into something else. When you're on that mat, you have one surface that is totally flat, and you're not, your balance isn't off. You're not, you don't have a weight distributed in a certain way that gives them the release point. I'm not saying you can't get a knee bar, from here it's just really inadvisable and I think to his credit um, certainly uh, Duffy recognizes that but here's what he does as a consequence he decides well I can't finish this here so I'm going to try and come up and you can see he triangles his own legs Poirier seems to be triangling his as well you can see Duffy posting on his head and this is the interesting part to me, because I don't quite understand what Duffy's doing here. And if someone can explain it to me, by all means, please do. Send me a note at Luke. or Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. He's got his hand posted, I get. He's got his foot posted, I get. I thought he was going to try and come whip this around the head and the arm, even with a, uh, if he could, or just drive the elbow straight back instead of whipping it, but just to come out on top. That's what I thought he was going to do. And he doesn't. He's got this weird leg weave going on here. I was like, well, maybe he's trying to leg weave pass. But what winds up happening is Poirier decides to, like, scissor his legs. And it kind of creates this weird motion uh, as he comes up. Because he kind of keeps his... Poirier is able to get that hand under him, this, this hand under him, scissors his legs a little bit. You can see the bottom leg comes forward a little bit as the other leg on top goes back. And... I think it partly pushed Duffy forward. But either way, here's what he tries. So we saw before, you don't really have a knee bar if you're kind of on top. I mean, you can get it, but it's very, very difficult. It's just, it's just inadvisable. How about that? So he, he gets up here. There's a scissoring motion. And he tries again for this like shoulder roll. But this time, so he can have the knee bar on bottom. That's what he wants here. That's what I think... Maybe the scissoring action did something here. I just don't understand the leg weave, to be honest. I don't, I don't know what purpose that is serving. But be that as it may. Um, so he goes through here. He shoulder rolls. So now he's at least got underneath for the uh, knee bar if he can get it. But I don't see where the legs are going to come from. He's trying to maybe create a lane here with his hand to bring the leg and the knee through. But it's not really there anymore. Duff Poirier, you know, sees it, 
pushes it off, says, get off me. You see that? Now, there is a leg right there. Let's go back. Yeah, okay, so the knee is here, but unless unless Duffy can continue to roll Poirier, bring that leg around, or I should say around, uh, just sort of this way, the body this way, you know, and scoot his own head further that way, there's just, the angle's bad here. There's just not enough. This is almost like a leg drag position for Dustin Poirier. And when he pushes the hand off, um, you can see he can just come right on top. I mean, this is like a leg drag almost, right? Not quite exactly, but uh, esque. And so Poirier continues to move around. He continues to roll through this position. This left leg is going to stand. You're going to see. See that left leg standing? Left leg on the ground here. Left leg standing for Dustin Poirier. He continues to move through. Um, this is a decent heel hook attempt. Now, he's standing, and that's not enough. Again, uh, heel hooks aren't the, my most favored weapon, but um, you know, you're trying to torque the ankle and control the knee. The knee should be much further on the inside. This is a doable heel hook. You have to respect it, but it's not really tight. But that's not the key thing for me here. It's the, the heel hook was never going to be that great. If someone is standing, it's going to be very hard to torque their knee um, and their ankle in a proper way. You kind of want them on the ground and controlling their body, which I'll explain just a further in just a second. But if someone if you're standing on one leg and someone's twisting the other one, yes, they can twist it far enough to hurt it. Don't get me wrong, they can do that. Um, but it's a little bit harder. It's it's not it's not ideal. And then when the knee is, you know, it's it's a it's not really above his hips. It's kind of right in line with the inside of his thigh. It's just not it's not great. You have to respect it because they can make adjustments and you can just sort of stay there. But it's not great. But here's the key detail for this: is you see this leg here, which you're going to find in this scramble because we go from 224 to 231. Duffy uses this leg to block Poirier. Poirier wants to rotate out and around, but he can't because this leg is blocking him. And you can see here, what's Duffy doing? He's trying to keep it there because you can see it's blocking that left leg from Poirier from coming around. Poirier is going to use his hand to try and peel it off. Whenever you see a heel hook, if you're just controlling one leg and not the far leg, or at least creating a blocking mechanism for the far leg, it, it has much, much, much less chance of working, especially in MMA or no gi anyway. Well, I guess you can't really use it in the gi, but certainly in MMA where you're sweaty and you're bloody in this particular case, and you might be trying to grab a heel hook in transition late in the third. It's just really, really difficult. But, but Duffy does a good job of trying to block it there, at least anyway, but he's, gonna, he's going kind of belly down here. This is going to be really hard for him to, you can see, this is, I mean, if you wanted to start a scramble position, who would you want to be in the position of? You'd want to be in probably Dustin Poirier's position. Yeah, that ankle, you know, you've got to be respecting of uh, Duffy's heel hook. You can see that, that, that heel, by the way. Just because it's closer to the elbow than it is the wrist does not mean it won't work. But typically speaking, you want it that bite on the wrist, not on the elbow. Again, let me be clear about that. Just because it's closer to the elbow and to the middle of the forearm, does not mean it won't work. You have to respect heel hooks. Typically speaking, the bite you want to come from the wrist, not closer to the elbow, as a general rule. But just, again, there'll be a thousand heel hook guys out there who'll say, I've got plenty of heel hooks this way, and they're right. Just saying it's a general rule, just talking about the looseness of this position. Who would you rather be in the scramble here? So this, to me, is when Poirier frees himself. Left leg is, left leg is locked. Left leg is now free. Now this leg is open here. This is nothing. There's nothing here. I mean, look at this. He's got, it's, you can see daylight in between the forearm and the heel of Poirier. The instep is on his ribs, uh, like, you know, close to the center of his body. 
this is there's nothing going on here. Both guys at this point probably know this. But if you wanted to be someone in the scramble, who would you want to be? I would want to be the guy that's got one hand and one foot on the mat. And maybe one hand on the cage. Not even grabbing, but at least I can put weight on it. Because that's going to allow me to scramble. But I, I have to say, if you go back and you watch this, the first person to recognize that this wasn't going to work should have been, in my judgment, Duffy. And he just doesn't really hustle on the scramble here. Now, again, he's not in a position to really win this. I mean, look at him. He's kind of one of I mean, if you just If you just, you know, Photoshop the other guy out, who would you rather be to win a scramble to come out on top? You would want to be Dustin Poirier. Got a foot on the mat, hand on the mat, hand in the cage. Got his base in the air. He's just more mobile. He can scramble free. There's nothing really here anymore. This leg, excuse me, this bottom leg isn't controlling the left leg of Poirier anymore. You would want to be Dustin Poirier. And, of course, what happens? Boom. Comes out and around. I mean, he can't even get his weight under him. Look at that. Uh, Joe Duffy. He barely gets his fingertips. He's trying to come up, trying to come up, and can't create the angle for it and gets taken down again. Uh, and I believe that's it, yeah. So real quickly, you could see the same position he's in before. He wants to roll through, shoot through. He kind of wants to catch this leg to bring it to him. Doesn't quite do it. Has to push off, readjust. Comes out on top. Not a great place for a knee bar. Comes up with this weird leg weave. Maybe he's just trying to get his ba- balance there. I'm not really sure. But in any case, either by push or by his own volition, Rolls through, comes back, tries to get uh, that leg through for the knee bar, but the weight is too far back. He did, again, the weight here, real quickly on this one, the weight here, he needs to have Poirier's weight sort of above him. And it is above him in a sense, but it's also, I mean, look what Poirier's weight really is. It's on his own hand. You would Because you need to move him. You need to move yourself around him. And if the weight is, if he's if a guy's able to control his own weight, it's going to, you have to... Your arms are not going to beat their legs. Their legs are stronger than your arms. So he just wasn't he was trying to force something that wasn't really there. Adapts for a heel hook. Does a nice job of getting this instep here and blocking Poirier from coming around the corner. But eventually he peels it, gets it, sets his balance, whips around the corner, and comes back on top. So just, just to show you here what, what a talented guy Dustin Poirier is. You know, he, in the boxing, I give a slight edge to Joe Duffy on the outside. But as long as... Poirier is, you know, controlling where the fight takes place, even if they're boxing. Poirier has an edge there. In the clinch, he has a clear edge. On the ground, on top, he has an edge. On takedowns, he has an edge. Uh, uh, a really sensational performance from Dustin Poirier here. Hats off to him. He deserved this win. All right, now in segment three, uh, we'll just look ahead real briefly to what's coming up. Um, it's funny, the the next Bellator, the next World Series of Fighting shows are not till late January. The next big one, actually, UFC Fight Night 81, Cruz versus Dillashaw. This is my most anticipated fight, certainly of the first quarter of booked fights. I mean, we'll see how the rest of the years play, uh, the rest of the year plays out. But for me, I really like this fight because I think the technical possibilities are there. I, I, I am not guaranteeing you that this will look in some kind of way that magically will have our uh, you know sense of of what striking is could be like or what fighting could be like radically enhanced. I, I don't I don't know that's the case. But I do think it's possible that the ingredients are there to make for something very, very special. We'll end up seeing what happens. Maybe someone gets knocked out in 13 seconds. But Cruz versus Dillashaw is going to be January 17th at the TD Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, it's going to be on Fox Sports 1. First title fight ever on Fox Sports 1. I absolutely think that's the right call. Bellator puts some of theirs on Friday nights, some of them in the Temple events on Saturday nights or whatever the Temple events may be. Um, not every fight needs to be on pay-per-view because it's a title fight. Some don't have to be. Um, and this is certainly one of them. And I think it's a great, great return to Fox Sports customers. Now, it's got... Uh, 
currently it's got four fights listed as taking place on Fox Sports 1. Typically they do a six-fight main card. I don't know how it's going to go this time. Maybe because the fifth fight or the fourth fight is a title fight, they're going to cut some of that back. We'll see how they pace it. They're probably going to ruin it, but we'll see how that goes. But in any case, Dillashaw versus Cruz is on that. Pettis versus Alvarez, that's sick. Brown versus Mitrione should be kind of fun. Ross Pearson taking on Masarin Duba. Masarin Duba. 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 Jeez, I keep mispronouncing his name. Francisco Trinaldo. Oh, I have to get that right before I, I mess this up. Masarin Duba. Yes, of course. Uh, he'll be taking on Ross Pearson. Uh, that'll be that's, that's currently listed as your main card. Then in addition to the preliminary card, also on Fox Sports 1, Cote versus Ben Saunders. Kind of fun. Maribek Tysonmal versus Chris Way. That's okay. Uh, currently, it's got Maximo Blanco versus TBD. I'm not sure what the situation is with that. Paul Felder taking on Darren Cruikshank should be kind of interesting. Tim Boach versus Ed Herman now on the Fight Pass portion. Charles Rosa, Jimmy Hedis, Ilir Latifi taking on Sean O'Connell, Rob Font taking on Joey Gomez, and then Francis Marbahosa taking on Abdul Karim uh, Edelov. Let me quickly check the UFC's website to see what their schedule looks like in terms of how the bouts are arranged on the card. Uh, so for Fox Sports One's card, yeah, they still got Blanco. They've got Blanco versus Sanders. Who do they have as Sanders? Luke Sanders, ten and zero. So there you go. Maxwell Blanco taking on Luke Sanders. So really, for a a a free card on uh, Fox Sports One, not bad, not bad at all. And certainly with the title fight, really can't complain. One of the better ones, as a matter of fact. And if they only put four fights in that main card, I think that is a dramatic improvement, especially with the fifth, fourth one uh, being five rounds. So that's next. Um, Lots of coverage going to come your way. Now, that's not next weekend. That's two weekends from now. So I plan to have as much coverage of that fight in terms of the main and co-main event as I can in terms of analysis, breakdowns, and everything else. So stick around for that. That is what's coming up next. Uh, if you want to email me, luke.thomas at SBNation.com. Any corrections, any updates, any differences in views of techniques that you may have, please share those with me. I can only be as good as the people who are helping me around me. And, um, yeah, thanks for watching. So until next time, enjoy the fights. <laughs>